0: Hello again. Uh, Welcome back to Andrew and Andrew on Texas Criminal Defense. I'm Andrew Decker. I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Harreth. Hello again. Well, I mean, I say hello to him every time we come on. Okay. So, hello again. I hope we have
1: repeat uh, repeat listeners, right? But I
0: hope we don't have repeat customers.
1: Right. No repeat customers, just listeners on the podcast. Right. I don't know, man. Sometimes that recidivism works in our favor (laughs) uh, sometimes.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. Yeah. Man, uh, so how you been? I've been good. I've been good. I'm looking forward to this uh, episode. I think this is our third time we're going to have the Trinity of Trinities. It's the third time we've had three Andrews on the show.
1: Three Andrews are going to be uh, uh, talking to uh, on the podcast today. That's right? exciting. Uh, and who is our third Andrew?
0: This is Andrew Hale. Uh, he is located in Chicago, Illinois. So it's. Uh, I think this is the first time we've actually interviewed someone who was out of state during the interview. Right. Uh, Michael Tiger doesn't live in Texas, but he was actually in San Antonio and, yeah. we, were, we were when we visited with him.
1: And he goes by Andy. Andy Hale, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for uh,
2: letting uh, Chicago in uh, join your ranks. I'm honored.
1: Any time, any time. And you're with Hale in Monaco, right? So you have your own firm uh, or a partner of a firm up there in Chicago. Yep. And, and so just tell our listeners just briefly about yourself and, and how you got into law. And, and we're talking today about wrongful convictions. So talk about you know, maybe you're beginning your involvement in uh, in that area. You know, it's it's funny. You never
2: really know where the road is going to take you, right? So, I graduated law school um, from the University of Illinois back in one thousand, nine hundred and eighty-seven. So, I've been doing this for over thirty years. Uh, when I say that, it's 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 kind of crazy. Um, and you know, the first fifteen years or so of my career really was commercial litigation primarily, and then about fifteen years ago, I started to a lot of work for the city of Chicago, where I would be retained as outside counsel to defend the city of Chicago and Chicago police officers in civil rights cases. That gave me exposure to basically these types of cases from the defense side. And then after I got involved with um, a documentary movie we made in 2014 called A Murder in the Park, I really started to focus more of my practice on Wrongful convictions on the plaintiff side. So um, now I've been really trying to help um, people who I think are wrongfully convicted prove their innocence. So my my career's kind of taken me, you know, every which way. You know,
1: yeah, yeah. And then we'll we'll definitely talk about the documentary here um, in a little bit because uh, right. that, that is certainly that's that's really interesting. Not a lot of our attorneys um, have been showcased on uh, on Netflix or. You know in their own in their own documentaries
0: right right so i think because i've actually had some people i think every defense attorney every uh criminal defense firm has gotten in the mail at least if not by phone someone claiming actual innocence my my i, I have a lady uh who lives on the other side of the state who claims that her son is actually innocent and the reason she's talked to me is here in texas those are usually handled uh, under um, 1107 habeas writs and not many attorneys in texas handle those or have done those and i've answered them for the court so people that know me will say call andrew and let him talk to you and unfortunately you only get one shot and the jailhouse lawyer will help him write one and so by the time they actually call an attorney they've they've wasted it they've, they've wasted, wasted that it, opportunity right. Hmm. Um, but how, how do you, cause I'm sure you get more than we do. How do you, and, and the best part but how do you differentiate between a whiner, somebody who's just going, I shouldn't be in jail. And an somebody who actually might have a claim because, you know, in their letter, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference.
2: Yeah. You know, that's, that's a really good question and it's hard. It's very hard. I think you have to, um, take a look at the evidence that convicted the person, see what type of evidence that was. If it's a case where um, there's no physical evidence linking the person to the crime, uh, if it's just a witness identification, um, you know, now you think, well, okay, that's not the strongest of evidence. Maybe there's some merit here. Uh, if there's physical evidence linking to the person of the crime or corroboration to a confession, that cuts against their claim, you know? Um, And so it really kind of depends. You're never gonna know enough from reading the letter. So I get a lot of those letters too. And I'll always ask, um, I'll first kind of just see how it's written and and just, you know, get kind of a feel for it. But I'll ask to look at uh, the police reports if the person has them. I always like to read the police reports. And you start to get a feel for how the person got convicted, why they got convicted, and in a lot of cases, you're right. You're going to, you know, I've made, the, I've made the determination. Look, I don't think this person really has a meritorious claim. Um, other times, you know, I do. And I always tell people, because I've seen this on both sides. I've been on the defense side of this. And I've been on the plaintiff side of this. I call them like I see them, you know. But it's, it can be hard to kind of figure it out. And a lot of times, and I feel sorry for people in this position, it takes an enormous amount of work to figure it out. So I think, you know, it's hard to find somebody who is willing to put in the time to dig through someone's file, just to see if they may or may not have a claim, you know, and it's time consuming, you know, when a lot of time, the attention, you know, the, de- the devil's in the details, you know, right. Um, but I think it really comes down to the kind of the nature of the evidence that was involved in convicting
1: the person. Are you, so like just practically speaking, you know, if you get a letter in the mail, are you replying to that letter saying, well, if you could request the offense report yourself and then get me that offense report, or are you like, uh, you know, there may be something here. I'm going to, you know, you yourself are going to go and request that. Like uh, how much, how much documentation, if you're needing that, those police reports or investigative notes or whatever, um, are you making these potential, clients get them and bring them to you or are you requesting them yourself
2: you know what I have found is typically the people that are very proactive right the ones that are re- reaching out writing lawyers about their cases uh, are the ones who have their file available you know they are they've got uh, they've got documents you know that are in their possession or their family members do and I've had pretty good success with just simply saying hey can you, or one of your family members send, and I'll just say, send me whatever you got. I'll, I'll take a look at it all. You know, they may right. not know what I think is important. So it's just like, send me anything. And then typically I'll get a package in the mail. You know, some are big, some are small. I'll read through it and, and I'll see, and you know, uh, I'll see if it's, if it's worth, you know, if there's some avenues I think that might be worth pursuing, you know, um, And I'm interested in cases of innocence as opposed to cases where somebody may have gotten a raw deal through sentencing or something else. Uh, My priority has been trying to help people who are in
0: prison who shouldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that is sometimes hard to, to differentiate uh, when you're talking to them, they go, well, I shouldn't be here for 30 years. Well, that's up to the sentencing agent. Uh, If, you aren't saying I'm not guilty or I never did this. Well, now we're arguing a number that that's, that's highly opinionated versus I did or did not commit this crime for which I was convicted. Yeah. Right.
2: I had a case like that just recently where I talked to the girlfriend of a guy in prison and she wanted some help. He got convicted of robbing a convenience store. Uh, There was an issue about whether DNA testing should have been done on a certain gun Um, But in talking to her and asking her, you know, like the police reports talk about the guy got into a white Cadillac.
0: I'm
2: like, did he have a white Cadillac? Yeah, he had a white Cadillac. Okay. Did he live at this address? Yeah, he lived at this address, (laughs) you know. So it's like, it's all adding up that this guy looks like he's the offender. Now, he may have gotten a raw deal in terms of the evidence used against him at trial. That's something that really, you know, his criminal defense team has to handle or help him with. But it wouldn't be the kind of case that that I would be interested in, you know, I've only got so much time on my hands and I'm trying to help people that, um, you know, shouldn't be in prison, especially the ones who've been there a long time already. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. And that's interesting because there's been a a spate of cases recently where, you know, these um, individuals who've been in prison for 30 some odd years and it comes out like, Oh, they, they had nothing to do with this, you know, whether that's because of advancements in DNA, uh, te- analysis technology or, or whatever they, the, you know, uh, witnesses change their minds or, you know, the actual, they they find somebody else that was responsible for it or something. But yeah, it's those, it seems to me that those, those cases that are overturned, these, these people have served 30 years in prison. You know,
2: it's, it is heartbreaking. So I, I, um I was able to get uh, a guy named Cleve Heidelberg out of prison after 47 years. And I actually think, I'm only um, 49 years old. You know, think about that. Half a century, your whole life. Right. My whole uh, life. Yeah. It, it could be the longest conviction to get vacated in the country. It, it very well could be. Um, wow. And 47 years. And uh, I'm actually working on a case now for um, a guy who got convicted in 1960. He just got out on parole last year. He served, he served 61 years I actually think he, I actually think he's innocent. Um, it's, it's in the works, it's been a battle. Um, and then I've got another one where I'm trying to help a guy who's been in for over 20 years for a double murder that I don't think he committed. And when you talk to these people on the phone and they write you letters, um, when you believe in their case, um, it is just it is just heartbreaking to think and imagine what that has to be like. You know, what is that like? And so I actually feel guilty if I'm not working on their case 24 seven, because there's such a sense of urgency, you know, every, every
1: day, every month, you know, matters. I would would think the person who, who served has served 61 years may not have a lot of time left and so time is is you know time is of the essence
2: that's exactly right so when i got when cleve heidelberg walked out of prison after 47 years i mean it was uh it was amazing glorious day um he wound up dying in his sleep 10 months later um now that was sad but it was also um rewarding knowing he died free and he died in, in his apartment you know um but when I when he walked out of prison I remember this distinctly I had mixed emotions I mean I was so excited for him to start you know kind of you know his his new chapter even though he was in his 70s but at the same time what it was that moment was a validation of what he had been claiming for half a century that he was wrongfully convicted you know it was it was confirmation of of you know that wrongful conviction and that i also found incredibly sad you know um what this guy had gone through so
1: it's tough you know it's tough yeah i you just google uh cleave heidelberg and and there he is smiling a a picture on google uh smiling ear to ear and you standing right next to him that's that you know well done sir
2: you know there so you know can i tell you a really interesting story about that of Of course. course um so We worked on, you know, the first case I worked on was this documentary movie, which I guess we'll talk about, A Murder in the Park, but it was about a guy named Al Story Simon. So when Al Story Simon got out of prison, he said to me, can you look into the case of my best friend, Cleve Heidelberg? You know, he's innocent too. Now, at that time, you know, I'm doing all the defense work for the city of Chicago. I'm really not doing plaintiff's wrongful conviction cases, but- I'd become friends with Al Story Simon and I said, Hey, I'll check this guy's case out. Long story short, you know, I worked on the case for two plus years. It was a monumental effort and we got his conviction vacated, but I would have never heard about Cleve Heidelberg if Al Story Simon didn't tell me about him.
1: My gosh. Yeah. That's that's terrifying. I mean, like how many, how many (sighs) attorneys in this nation are are clearing convictions, of people wrongfully imprisoned and you've got two and they're, they're good friends from, <laughs> from being in prison together. And that's,
0: uh, my that's heart hurts. terrible. My yeah. heart. I, I mean, truly, truly my heart hurts at this point. Um, and, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One, it's the fear that I as a defense attorney have missed something that should have been seen for a client one. And then two, for someone, anyone who's sitting in custody for, for even a year, for a day yeah. that is actually innocent is terrifying.
2: No, you know what? I've got another, I'll tell you another story, um, of one that's, that's high on my list. So there's after Cleve Heidelberg, after we got his conviction vacated, that's when I really started to receive a lot more mail from people. Um, cause they had saw what had happened. And I got a letter from a guy who was in the same prison as Cleve Heidelberg was, uh, Hill Correctional Center in Galesburg, Illinois. And he had been convicted of a double murder very close to where I live, surprisingly, um, probably 15 minutes away from where I live. Um, And I got all this guy's documents. And what was stunning to find out was before he went to trial, the FBI came to the local police department and said, look, we've got credible evidence that this double murder was a Latin King gang hit. And there was all kinds of corroboration for that. The woman who got shot, her boyfriend used to be in the Latin King. She would written in her diary how that she thought the gang was going to kill her. There was a Latin King hat found in her car. This whole uh, FBI evidence fell on deaf ears. It didn't come into the trial. This guy got convicted and he's been in prison for over 20 years. I talk to him all the time. And, you know, it's... What, what people don't understand is how difficult it is. If you got convicted right now, if either of you guys got arrested right now, charged with a rape and got convicted, you might think, oh, you know, I'm going to unwind this. You know what? It's not so easy. It's, it's not so easy. It can yeah, be very, impossible. very difficult to unwind a case um, for a lot of reasons. And I have another one where a guy in Peoria, he's been in prison for over 15 years for a rape. Um, you know, I remember him telling me when he got arrested, he was not worried about it. He went to trial. He testified in his own behalf, wasn't worried about it. Uh, and then when the jury came back, he was like, oh, damn, like he knew, yeah. like, you know, this, this was serious business. And what I find frustrating as a lawyer for me, and I, I, feel, I feel bad sometimes, I feel inadequate sometimes, that I can't do more and I can't accomplish more. And I can't accomplish more quicker, you know? Yeah. And that's the part, you know, it's really a full-time job. And, you know, I I just have such sympathy for the people that are wrongly convicted. And at the same time, I have defended cases where somebody claimed they were wrongfully convicted and and they weren't, you know? So um, I get that there's two sides to it, but I say each case, judge each case on its own facts,
0: you know? Right. So that, that brings us to, to the documentary, to the case that, that we said, Hey, give us a brief synopsis of you actually defended the, the state. Uh, I think in your case, it was the city of Chicago, uh, in the murder, murder in the park documentary, correct?
2: Well, actually what happened with that was, um, so there was a, there was a double murder in, at a park in Chicago in 1982. And this guy named Anthony Porter got convicted of those murders. Okay. Um, And he, uh, what happened was, there was this crazy chain of events. And I've told this story a thousand times and every time I tell it, it still sounds crazy to me. But Anthony Porter was in prison and he was about to be uh, facing the death penalty. This was in 1998. At that time, there was a big push in Illinois to abolish the death penalty. So what happened was, a professor at the Northwestern Innocence Project and some people he worked with got involved in Anthony Porter's case to try to spare him from the death penalty. It turned into trying to prove his innocence. And what, they, what happened was um, uh, they basically, uh, an investigator working with the, um, uh, the Innocence Project there at Northwestern, um, You know, another guy confessed to the crime, a guy named Elstory Simon. And what happened was he confessed to the crime, (laughs) Anthony Porter got out of prison and then Anthony Porter brought a civil suit against the city of Chicago. Since that was the kind of work I did, um, I attended the trial. I had friends who were defending the case. I watched the civil trial and I wasn't surprised at all when the jury came back with an award of zero um, and didn't give Anthony Porter any. And I remember, Just talking to people, I knew, like, how the heck did this guy get out of prison? Because the evidence against him, in my opinion, was overwhelming of guilt. So I talked to a friend of mine uh, who had a production company in Cleveland, and we had never done this before. We decided to make a documentary movie about the case. Now, at this point in time, Al Story Simon had been trying to prove his innocence for almost 10 years. And we we made this documentary and we interviewed everybody we could. We let the state's attorney's office know we were doing it. We got you know we got them on the radar screen, and I think it really caused the state's attorney's office to really take a hard hard look at Al Story Simon's case. And when they did, they uh, vacated his conviction and let him out of prison. Um, but it's you got to watch it. Uh, it is just the craziest case you can imagine so so where where, if we've got to watch it where can we find it you can it's now you can you can download it on amazon okay Uh, it did appear on netflix it did appear on showtime it actually uh was in a few theaters in some cities for a a small run but you can now get it on amazon and uh uh you know that's your homework assignment for you guys check it out for
1: sure gonna check it out you absolutely but so in that one the how i guess what did you do with Mr. Simon's confession? How, how, was, how so, was that overturned?
2: Yeah, so what happened was, you know, what, what you'll hear from, you know, so we know from, you know, organizations like the Innocence Project, um, the leading cause of a coarse confession or a false confession is the threat of death. We know that from all kinds of studies that are out there. Al Story Simon, what happened was, this investigator and another guy show up at his house early in the morning with guns, tell him they're police officers. They barge into his apartment. And then what they do is, and bear in mind, this is under the guise of an innocence project at Northwestern. They then show him a videotape that they have manufactured. There is an actor on the tape who is playing somebody who claims to be an eyewitness, who says on the tape, I was in the park that night and I saw saw Al Story Simon commit these murders. That was completely fabricated, okay? That guy was just an actor paid to do this video. They show this to Al Story Simon. They told him, hey, look, the police are on their way. Um, You're going down for this. We got your ex-wife who's gonna implicate you too. You're gonna get the death penalty if you don't confess. And he wound up right there at his apartment um, confessing on videotape to a murder he didn't commit. To save now,
1: him from being, you know, on death row. Yeah,
2: And you know, the thing we know now is when I first started doing these types of cases 15 years ago, if there was a confession, it was checkmate. It was checkmate end of story. We didn't really know as a society that there was this concept of false confessions. We didn't really believe it. We now know, we should know that it, it is true. It happens. Uh, we can debate how frequently it happens, but it clearly happens. Uh, people can falsely confess for a number of reasons. We know that. And so, um, you know, when, when I think with Al story Simon, it was not only his confession, but then all the evidence in the case pointed to the original guy, Anthony Porter. I mean, there were, there were people in the park who knew Anthony Porter from growing up with him. He was a known, um, you know, kind of, um, bad dude. And, there was, there was powerful testimony against him. There was not one witness who said Al Story Simon was in the park or had anything to do with the crime. But all that evidence got ignored um, during this process of Anthony Porter getting out and Al Story Simon, you know, uh, I'm using air quotes, confessing to the case. I mean, it is just the craziest story.
0: Yeah, the... the um it is hard to overcome a confession. Uh, It is also amazing how uh, in several cases of actual innocence, I've heard that, you know, like the DA or the investigator comes in and they don't full on tell the witnesses what to say, but they kind of go, well, it was on this day. Wasn't it that you saw this person? And they're like, well, I don't know. And they're like, well, this is the day that it happened. This is the day you saw him. And six months later, they're like, I guess it had to be that day. And I guess that's, you know, the time was about right, but the day really, they don't know. Right. But they've been convinced uh, that the day is that day, that morning.
2: Yeah. I think, you know, you, you, you see something like that, you know, um, I think a lot of times witnesses, you know, may not know exactly, you know um, what they saw or who they saw or when they saw it. Um I think part of the issue has been, um, you know, we, we now know that sometimes police officers can get something that we'll call tunnel vision, you know, and it's, you get focused in on either a certain suspect or a certain narrative and you go down that path. And we now know that you have to be open-minded. You have to be open to other possibilities or, or your theory being wrong, uh, or a witness being wrong. Right. And you have to be willing both as a, as a police officer and as a prosecutor, I think this is very important. You have to be willing to say, you know what? I don't think, I don't think this adds up. I think we got to do more investigation. Yeah. And, and a lot of people have trouble doing that. You know, you really have to, you know, especially state's attorneys, you know, a state's attorney's job is to seek justice, not to convict. It is to seek justice um just because the police officers give you a case and present it to you um you can still examine it yourself and you're supposed to with right. fresh eyes you know and decide whether you think it's worth prosecuting uh whether it's not worth prosecuting or whether you should do a further investigation
1: yeah in my uh, in my jury selection in my voir dire um which you're you're in Chicago so you call it voir dire right, right. voir dire. yeah <laughs> Uh, down here in Texas. No, we call it Bordire. So I have a whole slide on confirmation bias and it, and it really brings up a lot of lively debate on, are these officers trying to find out a, the truth of what happened or the truth of what they think happened? And, right. and that I, 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 probably should spend more time on that. Um, but, but confirmation bias, I think absolutely is something maybe they're getting a little bit better on now when they, when they go to these classes on investigate, uh, interrogation techniques and tactics and all that but um, it, it is a huge problem obviously we've seen this wave of wrongful convictions uh, or, or uh, convictions being overturned uh, lately and and it's probably because of that um, you know tough on crime back in the 80s and early 90s where you know people were just going to prison left and right well you know the the
2: Innocence Project of Texas has, conservatively estimated that 4% of the Texas prison population uh, uh, may have been wrongly convicted. So it's 140,000 Texas inmates, conservative 4% is is over 5,000 people that could be oh in Texas gosh. prisons right now who are wrongfully convicted. That's bigger that, than
0: most of the towns I grew up in. Yeah. Wow.
2: And If you do that on a national level, the Innocence Project uses a range of you know, 2.3% to 5% of the two plus million, you know, people incarcerated in the country, you know, and that comes out to 120,000 people plus. So the numbers can be pretty staggering, even though, you know, statistically the system gets it right, you know, most of the time, uh, there are still a lot of people who um, get convicted uh, who didn't commit that crime. And, and those are the kind of cases that, you know, we have to try to address, we have to try to figure out how we can
0: do better. Right. And what we so, can do better and we're making progress so we, we also from confirmation bias just to be fair to the police we all every one of us does right that's something that's part of our human nature but i think what you what you were going to is where i'm going to go next um what are the things that we can do especially as practitioners to help prevent the wrongful conviction before it happens
2: Right. So I think, you know, there's, there are a lot of police reforms that have happened that I think have helped. Um, One example in Chicago is, you know, we now have to videotape all interrogations involving murder cases. So um, that prevents any issue of, you know, what he said, she said in terms of what happened when somebody got interrogated, whether they claim they got, they got physically abused, whether they claim they got verbally abused, you know, those are videotaped now. So I think that is uh, a real important step. I know Texas has passed some uh, legislation in the last few years um, regulating, you know, jailhouse informants who oftentimes are used by prosec- by uh, prosecutors uh, to add, you know, uh, evidence to testify to somebody's guilt. There has to be a lot more transparency with the use of jailhouse informants and and how they're used. Um, that's a big one. There's been some in Texas. There's also been changes to uh, the way. Uh, lineups are conducted Um, you know for example people have to be told that the suspect might not be in the lineup Um, they're asked how confident they are Um, and so I think there are things that that are being done procedures being implemented to try to make sure that we're getting you know we're getting better evidence we're getting more reliable evidence and we're trying to eliminate cases where you know uh, we're relying on things that really aren't very credible. And I think we've also made a lot of progress with forensics. You know, there are a lot of cases over the years recently that've gotten unwound based on, you know, bite mark evidence, uh, that yeah. was need to be unreliable. In the case of mine, they used, they used, um, shoe, um, shoe print evidence against this guy, which was completely baseless. There was, there was, there was right. no, you know, that's been discounted. So I think we've gotten more sophisticated, with the forensic evidence that can be used and, and likewise, that can be helpful.
1: Wasn't the, uh, the, uh, hair strand, uh, analysis where they take like a known hair strand sample and maybe base it off or compare it to a hair strand that was found at the scene to say, Oh yeah, they're similar. I mean, that was basically like, that's such junk science. It's like the phrenology where they're, where they're, um, trying to tell your future from the bumps on your head. Like that's that's about the same level
2: that's a perfect example and, and it, you know uh there's a very well-known texas case um the timothy cole case timothy cole this is you want to talk about a sad case uh, read about timothy cole timothy cole got there was a woman who got raped in um uh in, in texas in 1985 and she was a uh she was a texas tech student and she said it was a, a lone uh, African-American male. Um, didn't really have too much of a description about him. Uh, somehow, uh, you know, Jeff, Tim, Timothy Cole is a, also a student. He was like a 24-year uh, veteran. He is, uh, he's at some bar, he's talking to some detective. Somehow he gets on their radar screen and now they show a, a photo to the victim And the photo array is mug shots and then one Polaroid and the Polaroids of of Timothy Cole. She winds up picking him out of the photo array and then picking him out of a lineup. And he gets convicted. He goes to prison. Then while he's in prison, uh, after the statute of limitations for rape has run, a guy who's in uh, prison already in Texas writes basically saying essentially that he committed the rape it doesn't go anywhere. It falls on deaf ears. Um, eventually, and then what happens is, uh, after being in prison for over 10 years, Timothy Cole dies in prison. Yeah. And then they do, um, they do, uh, some DNA testing after he passes, that comes back to the guy who had written the letter saying he was the rapist and it, it matched him. So, you know, I mean, Think about that, Um, and I had a case like that in Chicago. I actually defended the case where um, a woman was going to her parking garage to get in her car. She, a guy grabs her, throws her in her car, rapes her, throws her in the trunk, tries to drive out of the parking garage, but the two parking attendants recognize her car because she's a monthly parker, and they see this black guy driving the car. It's not this this white lady. See, they they don't open the gate. So the driver, the black guy, gets out of the car, walks for a few steps, and then runs. So the police, they let her out of the car. She survives. The police do a sketch of what, you know, the way the woman described her attacker. They circulate they circulate the sketch at roll call. A couple officers say, hey, this kind of looks like this guy that we had, were talking to about those burglaries last week. They bring him down to the station. They put him in a lineup, and she picks him out. I mean, I'm sorry, not not her. The two parking lot people pick him out because the woman couldn't identify the attacker. Now, what's interesting is you'll sometimes, you know, we know that there can be a a bias based on 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 race. Um, you know, for instance, a white person yeah. making identification of a black person. Here, the two parking lot attendants were black. The driver was black. Nonetheless, they said this was the guy. Guy served twenty six years in prison. His name was Jerry Miller. DNA evidence twenty six years later exonerated him. So, yeah, Ooh. you know, and um, so I think you know we know that we know that witness misidentifications is is the leading cause for wrongful convictions that have been exonerations due to DNA evidence. And the the Innocence Project estimates that seventy percent of DNA exonerations were based on witness misidentifications.
1: That's incredible. All right. Those are the
2: tough cases. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. yeah, Incredibly tough. Incredibly tough.
1: Before we move on from, uh, well, before we move on much further from a murder in the park, just wanted to, um, um, I saw this note here about the documentary. It was selected for Time Magazine's list of 15 of the most fascinating true crime stories ever told. And it has probably even more impressive, um, a seventy percent, seventy six percent fresh rating from Rotten Tomatoes. So, well done on that. I mean, uh, yeah. kudos there, for yeah. Sure. Oh, no, thank you. It uh,
2: it was it was an incredible emotional journey, and
0: um yeah. So yeah,
2: I could talk about that case for hours.
0: I'm, right. I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. But we're gonna watch the we're gonna watch the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. check it out. Um, check it out. So so that does bring me to the question of. Does media help or hinder in in this process of trying to determine who's actually innocent and who's not? Media yeah. media helps. Um,
2: what media can do is media can shine a spotlight on a case of an injustice. What happens in most cases is there's nobody listening. There's nobody who cares. There's no there's nobody really that I don't want to say nobody cares, but they're just not aware. And if you can get your case like, like Al story Simon with a murder in the park, if you can, if you can bring attention to it and shine a light on it, um, I think you can, you can get public support behind you. And I think you can also get, um, it can actually move the ball forward with decision makers. Now it, it, you shouldn't need to have to do that, but you know, Decision makers are real people too. And when you see there's gonna be a documentary movie about you know a case you're handling or a big newspaper article or magazine article, I think it causes people to realize, hey, how is this gonna portray me? How do I wanna look? And am I being fair? And am I comfortable that I've done everything correctly and fairly and everything that I can do? So I'm a big proponent of um, media helping, Helping your case, um, you know, and and uh, actually with my Chester Weeger case, the one where the guy was, look up this one when you get a chance. Uh, he was convicted of the Starve Rock murders in 1960. It was kind of it was it was a national story back in the day. These three women were bludgeoned to death in a state park in Downstate Illinois. Chester Weeger got convicted. Uh, we actually um, that there's been a, there's a documentary being made about Chester's case. It's going to come out. By the end of this year, uh, that's going to shine a light on his case. And I think it's going to really help um, us try to prove Chester's innocence.
1: Chester Wheeler, W-H-E-E-L-E-R?
2: No, Weger, W-E-G-E-R. All right. It was, you know, and I'll tell you, can I tell you a quick story about that? Absolutely. Of course. So what happened with that was Cleve Heidelberg was up for parole. This is when I was still trying to get him out of prison. It was in 2016, I believe he had a parole hearing in Springfield, Illinois, and he was denied parole, you know, again. And the next day in the Chicago Tribune, which is our main paper, there was a front page story about how Chester Weger, the star of rock killer was also denied parole. And what struck me about the article was just like Cleve Heidelberg, here's another guy who had been in prison for half a century. Another guy who refused to um, admit guilt, another guy who at a parole hearing refused to express remorse because he said he didn't do the crime. And there was also an interview with uh, one of the jurors, I think it was the last surviving juror who was, I think, in her 90s at the time, who said she always regretted her guilty vote. And I read this and I thought, gosh, this just strikes me. This sounds like Cleve Heidelberg's twin brother. And so I wrote him a letter and I just told him, I said, I'd love to come talk to you. And I went down to see him in prison and, you know, talk to him and then got his documents and dug into the case. And the more I dug in, I became convinced that he was innocent. And, you know, I've been trying to help him ever since. And oh, his case is based on his case is based on just a confession. And what's what's crazy about his case in 1960, as lawyers, you know, we're familiar with two landmark Supreme Court decisions: Brady versus Maryland and Miranda versus Arizona. Yeah. those cases weren't even on the books yet. <laughs> so, so <laughs> think about that. The detectives did not have to turn over exculpatory evidence. He did not have to be given any Miranda rights, and he testified at his trial that he, uh, when they were driving him back from a polygraph exam in Chicago, that the that one of the sheriff's officers was threatening him with the electric chair. That sheriff's officer denied it at trial, but what was interesting was uh, the defense called the state's attorney who was also in the car, who impeached the sheriff's officer and said, "Yeah." Several times, several times he threatened him with the electric chair. Um, And so it's a case that's based solely on a confession. It's an incredibly savage, bloody, brutal crime scene. There's no physical evidence linking Chester to the case. And I think this documentary that is gonna come out later this year is really going to um, be an eye-opener for a lot of people. Um, And I I think it's really gonna help Chester Tell his story,
1: and and thankfully Chester is still with us, right? He turned eighty-two yesterday. Fantastic!
0: All right, so so you know I asked the question about the publicity, but but all of what you've been telling me reminds me of uh, what Louis Brandeis said when he was talking about money trusts and the misuse of money trusts back in the nineteen thirteen Harper Bazaar Weekly. He said, publicity is just is justly commended as the remedy for social and industrial diseases. Sunlight is said to be the best disinfectants, electric light, the most efficient policeman. 1913. Mm. Mm. And I I think that's exactly what you're saying now is that often it it is being able to put some light on things that have remained in the dark.
2: You know, and the other thing is with with most of these cases, so. Um, if I went down to Ottawa, Illinois, and I walked into a bar, you know, uh, I'd have a bunch of people telling me Chester Weger's guilty. All right. All right. But here's the thing, what I what I say to people is, and I had a press conference in the Cleve Heidelberg case, when we first got involved. And I said to all the reporters, I said, I mean, don't take this the wrong way. But, you know, go read all the police reports, go read all the trial transcripts, go read all the witness statements. And then once you've done all that, come back and now let's have a discussion or debate about, you know, who committed the crime. But, you know, until you've done that kind of research uh, you're just not even qualified to say one way or the other. So if you ask people right now, you know, did Chester Weger commit the crime? I mean, they don't know any of the facts. They only know maybe what they read in a paper or what their mom told them or their dad told them, you know, and, and what I like about, you know, media is, you know, these days we've got a lot of very good, thorough investigative journalists. You know, um, although we've we've kind of lost that at the same time over time. But yeah. if you can get an investigative journalist who's willing to write a long, a long form piece, really spend time digging in and reading things, you know that you know that's what you want. You want somebody to look at the specifics of the case, right? That's going to help exactly. you.
1: Yeah, that's that's wonderful, and I and I think too the um, so another thing that another aspect of the media helping is that, you know, the the Innocence Project is doing a lot of this type of work, and they're very media savvy. Um, all, they're they're a, a lot of times, I mean, frequently in the news on any cases that they're working or the cases that they're winning and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think people, the more they hear that we just can't, we may not be able to trust some of these older convictions, I think they can wrap their mind around okay, well, maybe the courts did get it wrong. Maybe the system isn't foolproof, you know? And I, and I think yeah, that certainly helps. If I
2: can say one more thing, I think what's important is we need to have, um, you, you're now seeing cities establish conviction integrity units. So it'll be like in Chicago here in Cook County, we've got a dedicated conviction integrity unit with people specifically tasked to look at cases of potential wrongful conviction. So, you know, more and more jurisdictions need to adopt that. And you have to also have people in place who are willing to take a fair, fresh look at things. We can't be afraid to acknowledge past mistakes. If a mistake is made, we have to do the right thing, correct it, and try to do better. You know, and that's something I think that really um, has been happening and needs to continue to happen.
0: Yeah. And and it's always hard to admit our mistakes. Well, Andy, you have you have given us just so much good uh, information—a reminder of why we do hard work, why we why we work up cases, why we we try to turn over every rock we can, and hold the hold the state accountable to that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I hope our our listeners aren't you know fearful. I mean, our, our job does create or can create a lot of fear, uh, especially when we're representing those individuals who we you know, truly believe in their innocence. But I, I really think this, uh, this time with you has been inspiring, um, you know, to really go through our cases with a fine tooth comb and do everything that we can at the, at the trial level uh, to prove our, our client's innocence.
2: Absolutely. No,
1: it's, you got a tough
2: job and, uh, and it's a lot of pressure, but, you know, luckily people, you know, clients of yours are very lucky that they can have lawyers like you guys who have the time. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Gideon's Army from a few years back.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm actually a part of the, uh, I'm actually in the process with Gideon's uh, okay. at this point. And, and so. It's a great documentary about how, you know, profiling these three public
2: defenders. And what struck me was their massive caseloads. Right. And, and just, it's, it, it's just impossible to give every case the time and attention it needs when you've got 500 cases, right? And so there needs to be more resources for people, you know, for the public defenders out there, more of them and more resources, because it's just I sympathize with those with those public defenders who just, you know, they don't have the luxury that I do to spend all the time I can spend on a case. Right.
0: right. And, and that's also true for our prosecutors. Uh, I, I have some prosecutors I know that say right now they have between four and five hundred cases. They don't have the time. To go through them either right so it's not just on the defense it's also on on the prosecutors we have to have manageable caseloads that's not so that we can sit around and, and twiddle our thumbs it's so that we can actually do the work um because lots of times i will w- we'll be moving towards the second and third setting and i'll say have you looked at the video and i'll finally say look at minute eight line you know at second mm-hmm. 32 and watch the next 37 seconds this is the important piece yeah.
2: And one one tip I would give, you know, to any, you know, to, to you know, to criminal defense lawyers out there is uh, forensics had become so advanced that I would really encourage people in high stakes cases where there are where there are things to test, you know, um, not only DNA testing or ballistics tend- testing or forensic testing. Um, I've used an expert here in Elgin. Uh, they're called Microtrace. They're world-renowned microscopists. They look at things under a microscope, trace evidence. It could be hairs, fibers, dirt, dust. Um, you know, there are all kinds of ways you can attack your case. And I think forensics are often underused. But, but I always try in the cases I work on. That's always my first step. I'm never going to win my case on a he said, she said. I always look for a forensic component if I can. Yeah, smart.
0: Well, Andy, we also, uh, you know, in, in the midst of all the all the hard work and all the mental work, uh, we also like to have a little bit of fun. And so we ask all of our guests a few fun questions at the end, uh, just so we get to know the guy before he became Andy Hale. Uh, yeah, the, the kind of the, the man the behind behind lawyer, Yeah. Right. lawyer. <laughs> uh, so so what's your favorite band or musical artist? What do you listen to?
2: You know, uh, I'll answer it this way. My favorite station. There's a great radio station here in Chicago called V one hundred and three. It's R and B and throwbacks. So it's I love that R and B music from like when I was growing up. It's it's artists like you know Bobby Brown, Parliament Funkadelic, Tina Marie, TLC. I mean, that's that's my kind of music. I really love that kind of stuff. All right, that's
1: great. All right. What about your favorite book or maybe one you've read recently that, you're rec- that you recommend to people?
2: There's a book actually I'm reading right now. I'm about a third way done. Uh, I don't know if you heard about this book called Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. No. Um, it is a really fascinating book about how um, systemic racism in America has essentially kept people of color from making the same generational advances that other immigrant groups have managed. Um, so and- effectively
0: setting up a caste system. Yeah,
2: yeah, it is it is really, really a good book. I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot, I would highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, we will, we'll we will that put that on, that on our, the show notes. Yeah, show notes. And then last question, best piece of advice you've been given, personally or professionally? There's something my dad always told me, and I
2: think I've, I've, I tell it to my kids, I tell it to everybody at work, everything in life is an opportunity. So, you know, when something happens that you may perceive as negative, let's say you get fired from your job. Okay, that's horrible. But maybe this is an opportunity to find a job you like better um, and and get a better opportunity. So anytime I have a setback or something happens, I always look at it as an opportunity to something else. And I think, you know, that is one of the best pieces of advice I think I've ever gotten. Cool. I
0: like it.
1: Andy, uh, our listeners, if they want to get in touch with you, have some questions, um, is your website, the best, uh, way for them to do that? Hailmonaco.com.
2: Hailmonaco.com. You can go to my bio and you can, uh, see my email and my phone and see some of the projects we
1: were involved with. And, um, Absolutely. Yeah, I like it when I go to uh, some of our guests' websites and their successes page is longer than, I think, my entire web presence. Uh, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. So that, that website, again, uh, for our listeners, Hale Monaco. It's dot com, And we'll have that right. on our show notes as yeah, well.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, so, Andrew, w- this one has run long. I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean yeah. that in a very positive way. The people know where to find us. Yeah, absolutely. Go to TexasCrimDefense.com. Find us there. Also, the other normal places. Uh, until next time, keep listening, and we'll see you soon. Sounds great.